Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Trenaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Today, we're going to focus on recoveries, employment, and inflation, which industries are expected to recover or continue to struggle, and for how long. I have a lot of very specific information on California and Los Angeles I'd like to share. So you may want to get, uh, in the old days, a pencil and paper, but you may want to take some notes or review this podcast again, which I think you'll see or you'll appreciate once we go through a lot of the most recent data in the recovery expectations. Before we start, I'd like to remind you that Due to popular demand, we are offering our free course again after the July 4th weekend, www.uclaextension.edu, and go to the bottom of the web page and you'll see no charge courses. And we are having the second offering of our class. And of course, it's going to be updated on the recovery of the panic or crisis that we're in. The course title is The Panic of 2020. It's Panics, Crises, and Recoveries. Again, feel free to enroll. There's no homework. It's six sessions, and we're going to be updating as we need to, particularly sessions five and six, as we learn a lot more about the economic recovery and the jobs issues. Please join us. If you joined us in our class, we had about 200 enrolled. We're very happy to have that number or more again. So if you've taken the class and you want an update or a refresher, please enroll again. Thank you, and uh, let's start. First of all, I was very pleased to have joined the recent UCLA Anderson forecast a few days ago. The Anderson forecast, as many of you know, is one of the premier economic forecasting associations or groups in the United States. I recall back in 2007-8, they were one of the first to anticipate a severe meltdown due to the mortgage securitization crisis. But let's move on. I want to cover their view, importantly, of the national economy with respect to recovery, the California recovery, and additionally, comments on the length of recovery versus other recoveries from crises we've experienced. There are three critical assumptions for the forecast that I'm going to rather quickly go through. First of all, the public schools will largely reopen in the fall. Secondly, the pandemic will continue to be with us, not really under control through the fall. Third, a COVID vaccine becomes available in the first quarter of next year, but takes a large amount of time to inoculate the public. So the pandemic may largely run its course by the time a vaccine becomes available. But obviously, these are assumptions. The main themes of the forecast are that we will experience a 40% drop in real gross domestic product in the quarter we're just finishing now. The UCLA Anderson forecast anticipates a long recovery, not a V recovery, but more like a Nike swoosh or a checkmark recovery where it takes a long time to move up the right side of the checkmark. In sum, the real gross domestic product of the United States won't recover until 2023, possibly later. Employment, they definitely feel, will take much longer than 2023, and we'll go into that a little bit. The extraordinary monetary and fiscal response that we've seen from the Federal Reserve and from Congress is expected to continue. 
It's expected we have at least two more large stimulus packages, which refer to more debt on the way by the U.S. government and also continued monetary expansion by the Federal Reserve, which will likely keep interest rates pretty much where they are for another year, possibly longer, unless we have a crisis that intervenes. Inflation is likely to stay low, at least for the rest of the year, but there is a real risk of inflation spiking. We'll go into some of those reasons. A bright spot in all the bad news is housing, and particularly suburban housing. California housing is definitely a bright spot, and with COVID-19, more and more individuals are looking to make a choice to relocate outside the central city. COVID-19, as we covered before, accelerated existing trends like e-commerce. That's expected to continue. Tensions with China are expected to continue. And we'll see a shift from business investments and business focus on efficiency to resilience, including continued work from home, re-suburbanization, and a lot of stresses for higher education due to the high cost of degree programs and the lower rates of enrollments, particularly the schools that count on a lot of international students for their enrollments. More specifically, the gross domestic product has dropped from uh, a, a real number of $19 trillion, that's with inflation taken out, to approximately $16.5 trillion at the end of the quarter we're in. That's the expectation. And it is not expected to return to $19 trillion across the country until 2023. Employment, which was in January, full-time employment, which was approximately 152 million people, has dropped at last count to about $132 trillion. And it's actually more than that because part-time employment is going to be in addition to this in terms of jobs losses. But on full-time employment, the 20 million plus jobs lost, actually 25 million plus jobs lost, are not expected to recover to where they were in January all through the next three years. In fact, at the beginning of 2023, it's expected that the employment across the United States will increase from about 132 million now. Keep in mind it was about 152 million. It'll increase from 132 million to approximately 144 million. So it's about the halfway point. We're seeing a lot of job additions right now in certain industries, which we will cover, but uh, there will be the expectation of large permanent job losses and pretty substantial numbers of them. The unemployment rate officially, which is close to 14% today, the Anderson forecast does not see returning to less than 6% three years from now. The $3 trillion federal deficit that we're running this year <clears throat> is expected to be about $2.5 trillion next year and another $2 trillion the year after. So as far as we can see, as far as Anderson can see, large budget deficits are in our future. And likewise, large Fed money creation is in our future. It was pointed out that the Fed balance sheet has gone from $4 trillion about six months ago or less to about $7 trillion today. The expectation is that it will be a short number of months or maybe a year until it reaches $10 trillion. The money growth, the M2 growth in the U.S., which had been running since the 08-09 Great Recession in the range of 5 to 8% a year, has spiked in the past couple of months to over 25%. 
and I don't know that there's been any period where we've seen that kind of spike in money supply growth. The Fed is creating so much new money, buying so many bonds, having so many facilities to buy junk bonds, government bonds, exchange-traded funds, and make business loans through new facilities, that interest rates are expected to remain close to zero during the next two and a half, three years. However, the Fed is pretty much in total control of the yield curve. I think, as I've mentioned before, it's almost as if the Federal Reserve has nationalized the credit markets. Inflation during the foreseeable future is officially expected to remain low. However, due to all the money creation and all of the subsidies, all of the support activities, all of the deficit spending of Congress, the inflation risk is very much to the high side. So it wouldn't take a lot to have a serious inflation problem, but it's not expected. Doesn't mean it may not come out of nowhere as a so-called black swan event. But since we're talking about it in advance, it's probably not going to be a black swan event, but it's a very interesting risk to consider. Inflation would be higher if it is for different reasons than it has been in the past. Over the past recent decades, inflation, particularly during the early 1980s when Volcker was ahead of the Federal Reserve, Inflation came from an overheated economy. It came from many individuals wanting to get out of short-term investments, invest in real assets. That's really not the case today. Inflation would be pushed up today for some similar reasons, but it would be more cost-pushed today. In other words, rebuilding the supply chains to be more U.S.-centric to focus on resiliency instead of business efficiency, to focus on control of the supply chain as opposed to outsourcing it is likely going to be more expensive and that's going to require higher costs to be passed on in terms of prices. There are two other reasons for inflation and they are sort of the usual suspects and they're very much in place today. As I mentioned, the monetary expansion by the Federal Reserve and the deficit spending by the government. There is no anticipation of any return to physical austerity. In other words, it's expected the government will continue to deficit spend as long as it can. The U.S. dollar is a reserve. It's a reserve currency to the amount of about 70% of all reserve assets around the world, central bank assets. 10 years ago, it was about 70%, and 20 years ago, it was about 70%. The euro is about 20%, and China, despite all the noise they make and all the actions they take to try to replace the dollar, is in low single digits. The U.S. is likely to remain the reserve currency of the world, which gives it certain advantages that other countries don't have. The U.S. can actually get away more with printing a lot of money and running deficits, whereas independent countries that are not reserve currencies would have their currency depreciated pretty rapidly with those kind of actions. Not to say that the dollar won't be attacked during this period. It is vulnerable because of these actions, but it's expected to remain pretty much in its present position. Housing is, particularly in California, the residential is, uh, as I mentioned, a ray of hope, a ray of sunshine. Even though housing starts are going up, and even though they're expected to inch up quarter by quarter over the next two and a half years, they are still 30 to 40 percent under what they were back in uh, 2018, 2019. 
So it is a ray of sunshine, but it is nowhere near operating at capacity or nowhere actually near building the housing that California, and particularly Los Angeles, needs. I'd kind of like to pass on a quote. I'm a little bit reluctant to say who the quote is attributed to, but since the Anderson School used it, I guess I feel okay about doing that. Here's the quote. There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. That quote was attributed to Vladimir Lenin. Niels Bohr, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, had a quote. His quote is, it's very hard to predict, but especially the future. Let's go to the California economy. In previous recessions, the employment decline has been far less than it is now during this recession. For example, back in 08-09, California lost 1.3 million jobs about 8%. Back in the dot-com bubble bursting in 2001, California lost 300,000 jobs. And uh, importantly, back in 08-09, it took 26 months to just level off on the job loss. So this job loss just persisted and persisted. In the pandemic recession that we are in, the employment decline only in two months has been 2.6 million jobs. 15% of the jobs have been lost in California. And it looks a lot like the United States. If you look at payroll jobs, the losses are very similar to the United States in terms of the February to April period. Leisure and hospitality, the relative job loss, very similar to the United States in total. The same with retail trade, the same with healthcare and social services and other services. So California is tracking pretty closely to the national average. If we drill down a little bit in California, By far, the largest categories of job loss are leisure and hospitality and retail. And almost 50%, 5-0, of all jobs in leisure, hospitality, and retail have been lost in the past couple of months. Healthcare, social service, and other services, actually, even though in numbers they are far less, the percentage of job losses are 65%. California has been really impacted by COVID-19. In fact, it was, as I mentioned earlier in our podcast, it was in a recessionary environment anyway, and COVID-19 really brought it more front and center. Payroll job losses by sector also include administrative services, mainly individuals who are not managerial or supervisory. They include construction, and construction and residential is one of the bright spots. It'll probably be snapping back relatively quickly this year. And education. Education has lost a fair amount of jobs in California. There will be a snapback, but it's not expected to be anywhere near what construction would be. Continuing on with California, leisure and hospitality is likely going to be impacted for several years. Not only is there a fear of flying, as we know, but an amusement park phobia. Disneyland has been delayed in terms of its reopening as of a few days ago. Another delay has been made. And also in the bar and restaurant industry, a phobia. Not only restrictions on the number of people versus the capacity, but actually a number of individuals not wanting to go back into those environments because of the COVID-19 risk. More specifically, the overseas visitors, I'm going to talk about the United States, is impacted heavily in New York, Florida, California, and Nevada. And those states, if you you add them up, New York had about 25% of overseas visitors 
Florida had about 23%, California about 22%, Nevada about 7 or 8%. Hawaii is also in for 7 or 8%. But those overseas visitor totals have been cut pretty close to zero. And that is expected to continue, particularly if the European community places restrictions on Americans traveling to Europe. Likewise, there would likely be some retaliation, just a guess. Before we went into the COVID-19 recession, we already knew that brick-and-mortar retailing was overbuilt. We already knew that it was being challenged by online retailing. We already knew that that malls were failing around the United States due to overbuilding, and COVID-19 is pushing these issues front and center, where malls are still not, for the most part, reopening across the United States. Brick-and-mortar retailers, many of them are just not able to finance their way through despite the CARES program and and other programs. They're not able to generate uh, enough cash to make it through the period of low or no occupancy. And the prospects of getting back to high occupancy seem to be more remote. So the thinking is is that there's going to be a long-term impact in that component of the real estate market. U.S. airline revenue passenger miles, for example, during the dot-com bust went down about 25% very quickly, and they took about three years to recover. And that had nothing to do with a pandemic. This was purely economic. It took almost three years. Actually, it was 31 months to recover to where the airline passenger miles got back to where they were. This time, if if three years is any kind of a base, it's going to take much longer than that this time. California home sales have dropped really substantially from being up 7 or 8% in January to being down over 20% in May. This drop is not totally a disaster in some respects. For example, home median home prices across California have stayed amazingly stable, and they've stayed close to $600,000 per house. Not a small amount, but amazingly stable. So even though the transactions have dropped, the number of houses sold have dropped really substantially, the house price so far has stayed pretty much up at high levels. The overall California residential building forecast has us look at California new permits. And new permitting for homes has dropped from, in recent months, at an annual rate from about 10,000 down to about 6,000. So that's a 40% drop or so. It's expected, though, that by the end of next year, we'll be back pretty much to where we were in January. And and that growth has started. It's, It's showing itself. The California forecast in terms of residential real estate is relatively rosy where other areas, it's going to be a long-term problem, which leads me into the final part I want to cover in this podcast, the length of recoveries. Some recoveries are very rapid and some are very slow. Anderson went back and looked at all the recoveries from World War II up to today, and they found some very interesting patterns. From the prior peak, in terms of non-farm payrolls, the return to the prior peak from the recession only took, going back into the 1950s and 1960s, even the 1970s, only took a matter of months, maybe a year. But in the uh, 1990 period or so onward on to now, the recovery periods have been getting longer and longer in terms of the amount of time it takes to recover. 
More specifically, if we look at three of the recent recessions, if we look at the 1991 period, the dot-com meltdown 2001, and if we look at the 0809 period, the return to the same level of payroll took single-digit number of months back in 1991. It took about three years or so back in the dot-com bust. It took arguably almost nine years in the 08-09 recession, and this one appears to be much worse. It is likely that a recovery to the full-time job position in the United States would be more in the area of 10 or more years, not a number of months or not two or three years. And some areas of the economy, as I mentioned before, are not expected to come back. Maybe not ever. For example, retail brick-and-mortar, retail employees in brick-and-mortar stores. Manufacturing payrolls, as we rebuild our supply chains, are expected to increase, fortunately. The information subsectors like telecommunications, publishing, motion pictures, broadcasting, data processing are expected to be very slow in their recovery. Construction is expected to be pretty rapid, mainly due to residential. Wholesale jobs are expected to be non-increasing for the next three years. No increase. Retail jobs are, are, are expected to continue to decline and probably not reach the prior peak. Leisure and hospitality are expected to come back over a period of time. The only uh, warning about this is that leisure and hospitality jobs are generally low pay. They, many of them are part-time. They are transient and in that individuals change from company to company, hotel to hotel, restaurant to restaurant. The education and health services are expected to recover over the next several years. And probably the, the scary thing is that when we look at where we are right now versus the beginning, or let's say versus the trough of the recession, and I'm assuming we're assuming that April was the trough of the recession that we're in, some of the areas have been very substantially impacted versus other recessions. Importantly, again, looking at it through this lens, the entertainment industry, this general services industry, the hospitality industry, and the wholesale industry, if April is the trough of the recession we're in, some of these industries have fallen two, three, four times the amount of people we lost back in the 08-09 recession. With low to no expectations, a lot of these jobs will come back. The unemployment filings that continue on every Thursday, if you want to check in with uh, the internet or check in with a business channel, every Thursday morning the uh, report is made, the official report on new claims for unemployment. Uh, the good news is that new claims for unemployment have dropped to where they're only a million to a million and a half a week. The bad news is only a million to a million and a half is a lot of people. And it's happening after the government plans have been put in place to protect employment. So the million to million and a half new claims for unemployment we're seeing week after week now already have had the benefit of these programs to keep people employed, and it's not working out. I can only conclude that individuals are being discharged, laid off, retired, discontinued, because the companies themselves have concluded that there's really not much of a chance that they will need these employees during the recovery during the next several years. So with that, I would say we could look at some of the sectors in terms of the number of jobs lost from February to May. 
It's expected across the total non-farm payrolls that 13% of full-time jobs will have been lost from February to May. That number has not been declining. In April, it was about 14%. In May, it was about 13%. So we're, we're adding back a number of employees in terms of restaurant hospitality, but it's nowhere near fast enough. It's nowhere near strong enough to be optimistic about that making a significant difference in terms of overall economic growth. So in summary, most of the areas like information, wholesale, retail, even government, are likely to be further declining as the months continue on with all the programs in place. Manufacturing will likely have some recovery, but over the longer term, with rebuilding our supply chains, it looks pretty good for potential. Uh, Construction should have an excellent recovery in California. Residential construction, leisure and hospitality could have a significant bounce back, but the bounce back won't take the employment anywhere near where the employment was about three or four months ago. And the same for education and health services. A continuation of the COVID-19 issue, which, if anything, it looks as though it's continuing to be a problem longer than people expected a month ago. A continuation is very likely to begin impacting the managerial positions. So far, about 90% plus of the jobs lost have been production workers, they've been first-line workers, they've been customer relationship, first-line people. They've not been in the supervisory managerial ranks, but this is changing. And if this slowdown or partial shutdown continues on, it's expected that there will be a whole new round of first-time claims for unemployment that will be coming from people occupying the managerial positions. The really good news is that we will be rebuilding our supply chain. We could really have good news if the government would decide to focus on spending some small number of trillions of dollars on infrastructure improvement, creating new jobs, also supporting more supply chain reconstruction in our key industries, bringing more jobs back to the U.S. And I would say that The good news, bad news, it's good news that the Federal Reserve is adding so much liquidity because if they would stop that, there would just be an incredible number of major industries that would be in trouble and have to downsize even more. And the bad news is they're providing so much liquidity that it can't last. And liquidity by itself doesn't make a business viable. If I were to build an an arena or a conference center that would hold 5,000 people, I would have rent payments, I would have property tax payments, I would have basic maintenance payments. And for the Federal Reserve or anyone else to offer me monthly support to make those payments is great. It keeps my nose above the water. But if the business case itself, which would be in this case, if only a maximum of 50% of the people were allowed to come back to my conference center, or if 50% of the people didn't want to come back because they had fear for the contagion over the next two or three years, the month-to-month support doesn't make my business a viable business. In that respect, it's likely there's a large pipeline of companies that are in various stages of bankruptcy filings right now, and liquidity is not going to solve the problem because the businesses themselves may not have a viable business case under the present environment. And the municipalities have particular issues, including the state of California, the prioritization of payments of tax revenues in California, number one, number two, and it may be be number one A, one B, the money has to go to the bondholders to pay interest in principal, and the money has to go to the pension funds 
to uh, provide for the public pension obligations. After that, as money is left over, they can pay their own governmental staff or they can make grants to other entities in the state of California. This is going to be a serious issue across the United States as states and cities lose revenue, which is certainly happening. The priority of payments place employees and grants after the state pays its pension and after the state pays its bond obligations, which may not leave very much money. So states and cities are leveraged downward in this environment. And it's extremely unlikely that new taxes can be imposed fast enough and high enough to make up for these differences. With that, I'll close the podcast and we'll be back in two weeks. And I promise you we'll have more good news in two weeks. But I wanted to give you the benefit of a team of UCLA Anderson forecasters, very well regarded, collaborating to provide at least 75% of what I just went through. So thank you very much. Have a great 4th of July weekend. Take care. Stay well. Bye. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.